It's already been said, but Jesus Christ is risen. He is risen. Let's try that again. Jesus Christ is risen. Welcome to each of you to the, to the service this morning, and um, trust that it can be a, a time of uh, encouragement and uh, just looking in, at Scripture and so forth. I'm going to be looking at the resurrection this morning, <clears throat> and as we think about celebrating the resurrection of Jesus, I've been thinking about it quite a bit this week, and the more I thought about it, the more I reach the conclusion that I believe the resurrection is the single most significant event in all of history. It, I, and, and it's also the most significant and the most consequential. <clears throat> Even though we don't mention it on a given Sunday morning, the reason we gather every Sunday morning is because Jesus rose again and because it's the day that he rose again, 2,000 years ago. And I don't want us to forget that reality. But before we look at the question or look at the resurrection a bit more closely, I'd like for you to consider a question. If you were asked to define the gospel, what would you say? If somebody has something they want to say, um, feel free to respond. But if you were asked to define the gospel, what would you say? The good news, and that is what that is what gospel means, is the good news. It's not a trick question, and I'm not going to just put you under pressure, but the, our inability to just very quickly answer that suggests that maybe we've complicated what, how we even think about what the gospel is. And we'll, we'll come back to that here in a little bit. <clears throat> but I want us to take time this morning to explore some of the treasures from one of Paul's classic writings, and that's on the, re on the resurrection. That's in 1 Corinthians 15. And... Um, it's been a while since I have preached from 1 Corinthians. I've been preaching through the book for quite a while, and then I think it was around Thanksgiving or so, I, I stopped with chapter 13. And I'm jumping over chapter 14 and going straight into 15 this morning. We'll come back to chapter 14 at a later time. But chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians is the most extensive writing that we have in the New Testament about the resurrection, about the importance of the resurrection, the significance at, of the resurrection. And we're going to be looking at the first part of this, the first 34 verses this morning. That, and that, I feel like this gives us a good overview about the critical nature and the incredible importance of the resurrection, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ has to Christianity as a whole, but, but to us individually as well. And I've entitled this morning's message, The Gospel and the Resurrection. Alvin, I could use a glass of water. My mouth is dry this morning, so uh, appreciate that. 
So let's, uh, if you've turned, not turned to 1 Corinthians, turn to 1 Corinthians 15, and we want to read the first 34 verses together. And if you would stand as we read this together, I would appreciate it. <clears throat> now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance that which what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then even Christ, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is not if it is true that the dead are not raised for if the dead are not raised not even Christ has been raised and if Christ has not been raised your faith is futile and you are still in your sins then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished if in Christ we have hope in this life only we are of all people most to be pitied but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the, I'm sorry, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in, sub in subjection under his feet. But when it says, all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are the people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by the pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus, if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. 
Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. You may be seated. <clears throat> as is very evident, there is no way we're going to cover this in depth um, this morning. There is a lot in here. But I do want to give us an overview of what, um, what Paul is addressing here. And there's two things that I notice. The first part of this book, or the first part of this chapter of, that I, of the text, is focusing on the reality of the, of the crucifixion. And then the second, or the last part, is about the centrality of it and how, how central it is to what we, what, about everything that we believe and so forth. So I want to focus on that, uh, those two elements here this morning together. But Paul begins this chapter by reinforcing the, the reality of the resurrection, although the first two, from the first two verses, that is not immediately evident. Even though this is a chapter and he's focusing on the resurrection, the first two verses don't even mention the resurrection. In fact, it looks like it's a completely different subject. He's emphasizing the gospel or the good news multiple times in here. Um, that the gospel that he brought is the gospel that they believed and, and, and so forth and so forth. Uh, yeah, but it's, it's by this gospel message that they stand, they live in it, they've stood up for it. It's in the, by this gospel that it says we are being saved. Um, the King James would just say we are saved. But the Greek would indicate that this is more of a, uh, a continuous present tense, that we are being saved as we believe in this. And then he goes on to say that if you hold fast to the gospel message, then you have this... this um, it's, it says that the gospel that you've received, in which you stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast the word I preach to you, otherwise you've belie- believed in vain. And so Paul is just outlining again, reinforcing what they can all agree on. The Corinthians all agreed, this is what he preached, this is what they received, this is what they're believing, and so forth. But then in verse Three and four, we see a little bit more where he's going with this. And he says that, and this is where he emphasizes or describes the gospel so succinctly. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And so this is the highest or the greatest importance that he can give, and it's the gospel. It's the gospel message, just what he's described. And it's very three, very succinct three phrases that he makes here. That Christ died for your sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, and that he rose, was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's the essence of the gospel that Paul was preaching. Why is it that we complicated so much, and I want to just look at each of these a little bit briefly and then kind of look at it overall as well. So Jesus died 
for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. I'm not going to be focusing on that this morning. Um, Wayne did an excellent job of preaching a sermon here several weeks ago talking about Christ's death. That's not a question, but that's the first, that's the first statement here, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, according to the prophecies. There were many prophecies that were fulfilled in that. And then the very simple statement, he was buried. Um, why, why is that so important? He was buried. And it, there's not prophecies that really relate to that, or it certainly is not mentioned here, but it's just a statement of fact that Jesus died for our sins, he was buried. I think the reason is that it validates that Jesus actually died. If everyone knew that Jesus was dead, and he was buried just like any other man that had died would be treated, would be handled, would be buried. The disciples and close friends of Jesus were convinced he was dead, and they were in complete shock and grieving deeply. And, you know, just like them, like then, so it's today that the pain of death is real. It's deep. It's the separation is just a constant reminder that things are different. And the period between death and the resurrection is painful. There's no two ways of putting it. It's bleak. It's discouraging. The Saturday between Jesus' death and his resurrection was not an easy day. It was a dark day in many ways. And until Christ returns, we are facing the, that curse and the reality of death and the pain of separation from loved ones. We're living today in that Saturday between death and the promised resurrection. And while we know it's temporary, it doesn't make it any less real. And then he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And this, or the credibility of this statement, is really predicated on the first two statements. It's only amazing if everyone knows that he had died and that he had been buried. Only then is the resurrection spectacular. Um, something supernatural, and it validates it. It also just simply invalidated the claims that, well, people were just hallucinating or that Jesus had just swooned or, you know, whatever the reasons were they, that the disciples had stolen the body, all of these things. These two first statements make it clear that this was real and that he did raise from the dead. So the gospel is this. If somebody asks you what the gospel is, Jesus died for our sins. He was buried, and he rose again on the third day. What I notice about this is what is not stated. There's nothing here about the virgin birth or the incarnation. There is nothing about Jesus' life here on this earth, the 30 years that he lived here on this earth. There's nothing about his teaching and miracles. There's nothing about his unjust trial and condemnation. And then there's also nothing about being saved or that the gospel is justification by faith. 
There's nothing about accepting Jesus or receiving him into our hearts, but it all comes back to what we believe about Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, he being buried, and being raised again on the third day. That is the core of the gospel message. What we believe about those three statements reveals what we believe about the gospel in its essence. Paul then continues and makes a, or lists a number of appearances that Jesus made to people. It is not a comprehensive list because there are some appearances that are recorded in Scripture, like uh, the women at the tomb that we uh, have reference up here, that, it, that Paul does not reference here. And so I don't believe that he was trying to make a comprehensive list, but was rather just listing a number of appearances that were on his mind or that he thought about as in recording this. The one fact that is different or that is unique to this passage is that Jesus appeared in his resurrected body to a group of 500 men, 500 brothers, it says, at one time. I don't know when this happened, but it was in that 40-day window between his resurrection and his ascension back to the Father. And the fact that there were so many people, it was the 12, it was Peter, it was James, it was, um, it was these 500 men. There was, there was multiple people, the, uh, the two men on the road to Emmaus that Walter read about this morning. There were multiple people that Jesus appeared to. And that, the resurrection, this was written in approximately A.D. 55. So about 20 to 25 years after the actual event happened. So it's, it's a relatively short period of time. How many of us can remember pretty vividly what we were doing on September 11th? It's about that long ago. Um, and, and so people had a vivid memory of, of that encounter uh, with Jesus, with the resurrected body. And the fact that these people were still alive and were talking about it and had that firsthand uh, interaction with that gave a lot of credibility to this. So they're here, 20, 25 years later, there were hundreds of people that were still saying, I saw Jesus. I saw him, his resurrection. He rose from the dead and I saw him. And, and that alone is a very compelling case. <clears throat> and it certainly validates the historical aspect. It is not something that they just simply imagined or um, invented for some specific narrative to try to make a story about this. Uh, They believed it so much that they were willing to die for it. Uh, We don't, certainly the 12 did. The late Chuck Colson, founder of Prison Fellowship, said that the Watergate scandal proved to him that the resurrection was true. Now, how can, that's kind of a leap from here to there. But he said the Watergate scandal proved to him that the resurrection was true. All the disciples, so the 12 disciples, the 11 disciples, Judas committed suicide before his resurrection. 
they spent the rest of their lives proclaiming the truth of the resurrection, most of them being martyred for believing it. They believed it, and they died for it. Chuck Colson was among 12 of the most powerful men in the world in the White House at the time the Watergate scandal broke. And he said within three weeks, these 12 men were no able to perpetuate the lies that they had all agreed to, within three weeks. And so that fact that these 12 men couldn't stick together for a story that they had all agreed to says something about the 12 disciples giving their lives because they believed in the resurrection. While Jesus was making appearances during those 40 days before his, uh, before his ascension, I have to wonder whether he appeared or, or, or well, where else he appeared and whether unbelievers saw him or were able to recognize him. We don't know the answer to that question, but as I, as I read this and think about it, were unbelievers able to see him or recognize him? I don't know, but I, have, I really do wonder. Then Paul includes himself on this list as well. Even though he didn't see Jesus prior to the ascension, but later when he was trying to kill these believers for believing in the resurrection, he was struck down with a blinding light while traveling to Damascus to kill more believers. The disciples and Paul, even though they were, uh, Paul was trying to kill the disciples originally, now they are preaching the same gospel. And that gospel is centered around, it is anchored to and grounded in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In verses 12, or after chapter, uh, verse 11, he then shifts more into the centrality and goes beyond the actual historical fact of Christ's resurrection, but more into um, perhaps a bit more of a um, theological or doctrinal approach into looking at, at the resurrection itself. Apparently, there were some in the Corinthian church that at least had questions about the importance of Christ's resurrection and, and questioned the resurrection of the dead in the future. It's not apparent that they actually questioned Jesus' resurrection, but they were questioning other aspects of the resurrection. One of the reasons, perhaps, that the Corinthian believers grappled with was the idea that the Greek uh, philosophy and religions of that day considered the human body to be bad or evil in many ways. And so the thought of, of the human body, of the body being resurrected just didn't, it didn't uh, connect or it didn't relate well to what they were taught and how they were brought up and how they thought about life. Um, and certainly the thought of a resurrected and a perfected human body 
was in direct conflict with the mindset that they had about some of these things. <clears throat> so Paul responds to this outlook with a question he has here in verse 19, or verse 12, and then follows that with five statements. And that both the question and the five statements that he makes after that, he starts with the word if. And so he's, he's, he's kind of laying this out and is an argument here. And so, first of all, he says, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection? So, if, if, if Jesus is really raised from the dead, how can you say there's not a resurrection? I think he's referring to a future resurrection uh, when he's making that statement. But then he goes on. If there's no resurrection of the dead, meaning future resurrection of humanity, then not even Christ has been raised. Because he's saying you can't really separate these. If Christ hasn't been raised, then our preaching's in vain and your faith is vain. And then he kind of restates it or makes the same argument in a different way. If the dead aren't raised, then Christ hasn't been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. And so, well, and then he concludes with the last statement. If in Christ, we have hope in this life only. So it's not, he, it's not like they were denying who Christ was, but if we only have hope, the here and now, until we die, he says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. It's like we're just in a pitiful situation if that's literally all that there is. Christ died for us, but then there's nothing more after this life. Paul is demonstrating here that they're not what they're thinking, what their logic about the future resurrection of the dead is just not right. It doesn't make sense. Because the fact that that Jesus, because the, if Jesus was resurrected, then that means there is a resurrection. If he wasn't resurrected, then there isn't. Or if we say that there's not a future resurrection, Jesus, what does it matter if he resurrected? It doesn't matter. Um, but it, it really is kind of a, uh, a confusing argument and so forth, but I... I it makes more sense when you read this, when you write, realize that what they're talking about, what the question is, is about the future resurrection. And they, and they weren't sure how that all fit together with Christ's resurrection. But they are very interconnected, as we will see in the next verses, that for the one to happen, the other has, has to happen. <clears throat> in verse, verses 20 to 28, then, Paul takes a bit more of a theological approach in explaining why the resurrection matters. Both Jesus as well as the resurrection of the dead. I'm not going to reread all of that, but in verse, in verse 20, he talks about the first fruits. 
And as I read this and started studying this, literally the question that I had, what do first fruits have to do with the resurrection? That's, that's what went through my mind, is what does this have to do? What are first fruits? Well, the first fruits are, is the first of the harvest, of the fruit or grain or vegetable harvest uh, when, when that time comes. And the Old Testament law had specific instructions that they were to bring the first fruits as an offering to the Lord. And to put that into perspective a little bit, um, I'm not a, I don't garden much myself, but I know how it is when the first strawberries are ready or the first sweet corn is ready, the first tomatoes, how anxious we are to taste them. And what the Old Testament law is that those first fruits are to be offered to the Lord. And, um, and in particular in the, in the context of grain, in Leviticus 23, verses, uh, starting in verse 9, I'm just going to read several verses. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so that it may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And he goes on, and there's some more that is said there. But this wave offering of the first fruits were to be offered on the day after the Sabbath as an expression of trust and confidence of the harvest that was to follow. That's what Jesus did. He rose from the, he was the first fruits. He rose on the day after the Sabbath. He was the first one as a expression of trust and confidence of the harvest of resurrection that is coming in the future. Jesus was the first one to be really, truly resurrected. Now you would say, what about Lazarus? Or what about these other instances of people coming back to life? They came back to life. They were not truly resurrected. Jesus was the only one. He was the first one that came in the resurrection body, in his resurrected body, a different and more glorious body that was not subject to the physical limitations that we have now. Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection, resurrecting the day after the Jewish Sabbath as the ultimate wave offering. And the harvest of the resurrection of those that have died is to follow. Jesus was first, and we're just simply, we are confident the harvest will come. And then Paul goes into the comparison of, and contrasting of Adam versus Jesus in verses 21 and 22. Adam was one man who brought death upon all mankind, and through Adam we die compared to Jesus, who was one man, brought the resurrection of the dead, and we are made alive. In verses 23 through 26, then, Paul somewhat shifts to the end of time. And it's interesting, he says that there's an order, or there's a sequence, and um, you can't necessarily say that the 
sequence that's given here is exactly sequentially what will happen, but these are the things that will happen. Christ, the first fruits, is, is Jesus' resurrection. There's a second coming of Jesus. Those who belong to him will be taken with him. Then comes the end, it says, where Jesus delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule, authority, and power. And interestingly, it says, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. We, I often think about that the death has been conquered when Jesus rose. In essence, it has been, but not until the end of time when there will be no more death is death truly or fully conquered, I should say, um, or is destroyed. Ultimately, then, Jesus reigns, and he's the king. Everything is subject under him, as we see down through verse 28. <clears throat> There's a lot more that could be said about that, but he's, he's again bringing together the idea that Jesus' resurrection is tied very closely. It is only because of Jesus' resurrection that the resurrection of the dead in the future can happen, and you can't separate the two because they're all part of the same harvest. Jesus was the first fruits. The rest of the harvest is to follow. The other thing I just want to mention here is regarding the last part of this as far as the end times. He says, each to his order, Christ the first fruits, and he goes on. Then comes the end. Um, I am not a student of eschatology. I probably should study it more, but I am not. I do know that there are sincere scholars who can have differing views of what's going to happen in the future with end times. And I, I, don't, I can't say which one is more right than the other. But I also know that we in our humanity are confined with limitations of information that we have available as well as the limitations of time and space. God is not restricted with any of those limitations. And the, the, just the statement that one day is as a thousand years with the Lord gives a lot of, like, what, what does this mean or how quickly do these things happen and, and when, and I don't know. Paul doesn't go into detail here, but he does make it clear the end result will be that Satan and death are completely destroyed, defeated, and Jesus is the one that's on the throne and reigning as king of kings. Moving on to the last part of this passage, verses 29 to 34. <clears throat> I will be completely honest. I do not understand verse 29. I'll read it. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? I do know that the Mormons latch onto this verse in making a case that they are baptized for people that have died um, so that they're saved. So they baptize, are baptized now for people that have died in the past so they can be saved. And the emphasis is especially on one's ancestors, but it can be on anyone who has died as a means of ensuring their salvation. I 
do not believe that this, that Paul is teaching that in any form. I will say that right up front. But there are several observations that I make about this verse. I don't understand it. Paul does not seem to be saying that the Corinthians are practicing this. It was being practiced somewhere, or it must have been, but he doesn't indicate that the Corinthians were the ones practicing this. He says, why do people? I mean, it could include that, but it doesn't specifically say that. Neither is there any indication that Paul is endorsing this practice. He's observing that it's happened, but he's not, that doesn't say that he's endorsing it or that he's teaching that it should be. But it, what it does seem to be, it's another argument for a future resurrection of the dead. It's another case that, that the, why would you even do this if there's not a resurrection of the dead in the future? So I don't know what Paul means by this verse, and there's not any other scriptures that I'm aware of that uh, suggest anything of this nature of the baptism of the dead. He then concludes this portion with the admonition that we are to live as if we are to die every day. We are to live our lives in that way. That's what Paul does. He says, um, I die every day. Uh, we are to, to be a living sacrifice for God. We're living not for ourselves, but for Christ, our King and our Redeemer. And then in the last several verses again, he just again comes around and is like, if, if there's nothing more than this life, even in following Christ, it's futile in the end. And it doesn't make any sense. He's, he was like, you know, why would I even fight the beasts of Ephesus? I mean, we have no record that he actually did, but why would somebody put their life at stake and even fight for their lives if that's all that there is? I mean, if there's nothing more. He says, if that's the case, we may as well eat, drink, and be merry and enjoy ourselves because then we're going to die. And that's the end. But that's not... The point that he wants to make, but he's saying that if that's reality, that's, that's how we should live. In verse 33, the phrase, bad company ruins good morals, according to commentators, that was probably taken from a, uh, a Greek, perhaps a Greek play of some kind. Or, but it would have been a phrase that would have been known at that time. But then in verse 34, wake up from your drunken stupor, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame, but it's like just wake up. Understand the importance and the centrality of the resurrection. That is, that is what's so important. Recognize and embrace the miracle of the resurrection of Jesus as well as the promise of the resurrection to eternal life for all of us to follow. In wrapping up, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I believe, is the single most consequential event to have ever occurred. It's a historical fact, as Paul establishes here. He was seen by hundreds of people over the span of 40 days after the resurrection before he ascended to heaven. 
His resurrection definitely defeated the power of Satan. And it's also a promise of the future resurrection of the dead. Of that our, we can anticipate a resurrection body, which the rest of chapter 15 then goes into that a bit more as well. And at the core of the gospel message is, are these three facts. Jesus died for our sins. He was buried and that he rose again on the third day. And let's never forget those three statements, those simple words that have such profound truth and hope. Jesus Christ is risen. Let's have you respond again. He is risen indeed. Jesus Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's stand together for benediction. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip each one of you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.